Welcome to another Say No KNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chris and Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash Say No Org or tweet us at Say No Org. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode of the Say No Drug Education podcast. In this episode, I sat down with investigative reporter Jason Warwick. Jason currently works for the CBC and he uh, once worked for the Star Phoenix here in Saskatoon. My life and Jason's has crossed several times in the stories that he has written. I'm going to have a link in the show notes to a story called called Saving Crystal and Pope, as well as some stories regarding a police agent named Noel Harder. Jason Wark sat down with Noel and provided some insight and perspective into his life. In this episode with Jason, we talked about some of the similarities between investigative reporting and policing, and specifically handling confidential informants. And we also talked about the Humboldt Broncos tragedy and what reporters do to keep their mental health in check when following stories and listening to the pain that a community is going through. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Please check out the show notes for some additional stories that Jason has written over the years and enjoy the episode. And we'll see you next week when we sit down with Senator Vernon White. As always, check out our Facebook page, Facebook backslash Say No Org, or tweet us at Say No Org. Jason, thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. So I wanted to uh, talk to you because you were kind of in my thoughts. You've been somebody that you know I've got to know over the last few years. Yes. And in the wake of the uh, Humboldt Broncos tragedy, mm-hmm. and we're seeing lots of um, reporting going on there, but I've yet to really hear any perspectives from the reporters about what it's like actually reporting on tragic incidents in a community where you're kind of reliving that trauma through the eyes of other people over and over again. So I just kind of wanted to ask you some questions to start things off with, you know, what's it like reporting on traumatic events in a community? How does that impact you? And, you know, what do you take into account? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, I guess. And I guess I'd start with the central point and the by far the number one point is that, let's be clear, I'm not directly affected by any of these tragedies. The families, the people who are injured, all of the people in the community, these are people that are directly affected by these tragedies. And in no way am I trying to minimize any of that or compare ourselves uh, to those things. We have a job that's difficult, but it's nothing compared to what these people are going through. And it's also, in some ways, it does weigh on you for the long term, but this is very temporary. I can go in and leave whenever I am done my story. Right. And yes, it is heavy, but we are able to go in and out in in that sense. And these people aren't. So I guess to start with, it's unimaginable what they're going through. I can only speak from from our experience. And uh, 
the experience in Humboldt in the last couple of weeks is of a magnitude that has rarely been seen in this province. Yeah, uh, or even the country. Yeah, and so we've seen the the outpouring of attention and fundraising and tributes and all of those things that have just been overwhelming in scale. And so as uh, reporters, we have our part in all of this. We are hopefully the people that can tell the community, tell the province, tell the country, tell the world in this case, what is happening there. And it's not only the facts of what might have happened in that incident, which is important, but that some of which is known, some of which will come out in the coming weeks and some which never may be known. But it's also to tell the world what Humboldt is like and what these people are like. And their resilience. and Yes. And in this case, I think the key was that the community, these families were extraordinarily open. First responders, uh, everyone was extraordinarily open with the media and with us as reporters and shared these intimate, painful details of what they've been going through. And we were hopefully able to convey that emotion and those poignant stories and that, uh, that beauty in all of this tragedy. That can't happen as reporters. We can't tell people about that unless, unless our sources are generous enough to let us into their lives, let us into these pivotal, in this case, tragic moments in their lives. And so uh, it's an honor to be able to, to have someone share something like that with you in a, in a way that after they've gone through something that's just unimaginable. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I guess that is an honor. It's very difficult, but, but I can't describe how much of uh, a privilege in a way that it is. It's not fun, but you're able to tell people something positive or something resilient or something inspiring about something so horrific. Right. Uh, and that's why we do what we do. Uh, and yes, it's to find answers, but it's also to show the truth of the spirit of the place. And I think that we've been able to do that. Yeah, I think that's definitely happened with the community of Humboldt. Yeah. So when you're hearing story after story and uh, not just speaking about a Humboldt, but you know, if there's a, if there's a tragic event that happens to a person and you're going there as an investigative reporter to, you know, hear that story, you know, as a police officer responding to responding to a traumatic event, you know, you hear cops often say, you know, as soon as we put our uniform on, you know, there's some sort of layer of mental armor that happens as well. And yeah, we, we do suffer from things like PTSD from certain calls or certain calls that still stick in my mind that I'll never forget, but not in a, in a really unhealthy way necessarily. Is there some layer of protection that you think uh, reporters might also kind of armor themselves with when they're dealing with traumatic reporting? There's two extremes, of course, right? You could go into a situation as a journalist, as a police officer, as a first responder, as, as a number of other professions, and go into these tragedies completely closing yourself off emotionally. You could put full armor on mentally and just go through it in a cold and dry and factual way, mechanical, and do it that way. Or on the other extreme, you could completely empathize uh, with the people there and it would be a, uh, an incredibly emotional experience. You just try and put yourself in those people's shoes. Uh, you become an, you could become an active participant on the one extreme, right? right? 
And to me, as a journalist, the ideal is somewhere in the middle of that. Yes, we have to keep a professional approach to it, uh, whether you call that a professional distance or putting on armor or whatever it is. I can't allow myself to be overwhelmed by emotions when I arrive at the scene of a murder-suicide or I'm speaking with grieving parents or whatever, because I have to be thinking about how I'm going to structure the story that I'm writing. I have to write down the sentences that they're saying for the quotes. I have to think about uh, whether my radio rec- or TV recording is at the proper levels. Right. And so unfortunately, you're, you're forced to think about these very technical things that require you to think technically and unemotionally. But by the same token, if you have no emotion, that's going to show there's going to be no emotion in your stories either. Uh, so when people watch someone on TV or read them on the web or hear the radio, they'll know if there's some emotion in that story or not, or whether the reporter cares about it. It's not just the sources that are speaking that affect that. And so that doesn't mean that I'm taking a side or saying I agree with one side and not the other, because we also have to be careful to be objective or at least fair to every side, right? Right. And in tragedies, there's often two sides or more, right? Who disagree with each other in some cases, or there's issues that are controversial. Yes, And so... I do think you have to try and empathize as much as possible while at the same time being aware of the technical requirements of your profession, right? So it's a real struggle. And I find myself veering to one uh, extreme or the other and then having to mentally bring myself back, whether it's in the moment when I'm talking to that person or at the tragic scene or whether it's sitting at my desk trying to craft the story and finding myself overwhelmed at times uh, by the material when it when you get back to the office and it, it hits you sometimes uh, at strange times it it uh, can wake you up in the middle of the night a tragedy especially involving kids uh, or covering really horrible things like a child porn case which police officers obviously have to do but journalists as well I mean now that I have kids things you look at things you totally look at things right? different same thing happened to me yeah yeah so yeah it can it can weigh heavily but I, I think to do justice to those people's stories and to tell the truth of what's going on, you have to empathize and allow yourself to open up a little bit. You can't keep, you can't close yourself off completely to your emotions. Right. And so as you're, as you're empathizing, cause I'm sure, I mean, I've, I've been at calls on the policing side and, and it's pretty easy to get sucked into the one side of the, of the story. And then, you know, there's a lot of calls where there are two sides to a story and, you know, your partner's dealing with one side and you're dealing with the other. And, you know, especially, especially new young cops. And I was the same. And sometimes you still even catch yourself getting sucked in where this person's so emotional and they're telling this, this story or these details that occurred to them and what their role in this story was. And, and you're sitting there and you're, you're like, oh, wow, like this, this, I can't believe this happened to you. And, you know, you're, you almost go a little too far onto their side. And then you come and you go to talk to your partner and like, you got to put your guy under arrest. Like, this is what happened. He's like, what are you talking about? We got to put your guy under arrest. (laughs) And it's like, what do you mean? And then you suddenly, you start hearing the two sides of the story. And then finally the truth comes in the balance of the two. So, um, so I'm sure it's, it's the same probably with. That's a great point. That's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother layer that you have to evaluate how you're going to approach it, right? Right. The emotional side of, of uh, tragedies or, or crimes or things like that. But 
our job is not only to uh, convey the emotion, but convey the truth of things, right? And so if it's untrue, then you're doing a disservice to the public, right? right? If you're charging the wrong person, it's a disservice to the justice system and to the public, right? So you got to find the truth or at least make the best attempt you can at getting to the truth. And so... So how do you do that when there's only one side? Because a lot of times with reporters um, and stories that come forward, there's there's kind of one squeaky wheel that's come forward to talk to you. Exactly. Because they want to put their story out, and yet the other side might not even be willing to talk about it. So how right. do you weigh those? Yeah, that's a, that's a balancing act, right? If one side is approaching the media and calling and sending out news releases or you know coming down to the office or whatever, or they're on the courthouse steps talking about things... Uh, and the other side is silent, uh, what do you do, right? And so there's all kinds of things we attempt to do. Of course, you try and get equal comment and equal number of stories and equal prominence for, for all sides, for all reasonable sides. But if that's not possible, how do you how do you balance things? And so some of it is perhaps they've spoken six months or a year ago when this matter was at an earlier stage, whether right. it's a court case or whatever. And you can repeat a lot of that background in any stories that you write. So at least they have some representation. Uh, maybe there's some documentation. If someone is making a claim and the other side's not talking, maybe you can look back at the police stats or go to SGI or you know ask that convenience store owner or wh- whoever it is about what they saw happen and to try and balance it out and not just run with one side of things, uh, especially if it's controversial. If you're doing a feature on a volleyball player, obviously, one source <laughs> yeah, is who cares? often enough, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe talk to the coach. But right. uh, but yeah, if you're talking about justice issues or political issues or things like that, environment, uh, all these things that often have different perspectives and sometimes very controversial or very black and white opposed things, then yeah, you've got to work hard. And then when you do the final story, you have to make it clear because readers are increasingly demanding it, especially with social media now. You have to make it clear that you attempted to be fair, even if you don't have person X represented in the story and there's not an interview with them. You have to make it clear that you attempted to give them a chance to talk about it. And then you have to find other background, if at all possible, to to make sure that that's balanced. But that that's a very difficult issue. And the the bigger the story, the more important the story, the more important that becomes. Yeah. Right? And it's not always possible, right? So you have to make a decision, right? Is this information so important that we just have to get it out there now and we'll do as much as we can for all sides? But really, this needs to be told? Or is this something... Because there are stories that have to happen now. If the provincial budget is being released today, then you have to do that story today. You can't wait a week for the opposition to comment if they don't feel like it, right? You go with it. But other stories, if you're working on a long-term feature about an issue in the community, then maybe you can wait a week if the person is in Hawaii and says they are on vacation, but we'll talk when they get back, right? Right. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's one of the things that spearheaded uh, me wanting to start our nonprofit, org was because to me, experience is useless unless you share it. And so we have all these people in our community who are affected by the drug trade, for example. They have these incredible stories that we can all learn from. And it's what they went through and the trauma that they've experienced, some of them, things that they've overcome. 
if they have no avenue to share it, everything that they went through for some, some of them feel that it, that it might've been for nothing, like right. it was useless. And, and I think a lot of uh, police services, traditionally speaking, have been reluctant at sharing information. And it, I mean, I've, I've talked to uh, some superior officers as well and, and saying like, it, it seems as though the police have this innate need to protect the public which obviously mm-hmm. that's one of our roles but they've also done it in some in some cases at least traditionally from protecting them from information as well which i think is actually damaging i think it's mm. a role of the police to educate the public right. about what's going on in the community and so you know that's where we've started to see you know police services have social media departments now yes. they have media people that are hired specifically to deal with things like that and i think that's a great switch where the public needs to know this information about what's going on in the community. And sometimes, sometimes those sources come from people who have, you know, firsthand lived experience and there's not many avenues for them to get out there. So actually that kind of brings me to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because there's, there's some overlap as well between investigative reporting and policing, especially in the intelligence side of policing is confidential informants. Right. And I know that a few years ago, you kind of made your own story where, suppose, yeah. where you refused to, uh, you know, give your uh, informant notes to, to a judge. Can you right. talk a little bit about that? And, and, uh, and then we can kind of delve in a little further. Sure. I mean, uh, as a police officer, you've thought about and dealt with these issues uh, uh, frequently as well, right? Right. And one of the things that both of us have to deal with is the people that give us information. Uh, what does that relationship mean? Sometimes it's not a big deal. There's a fender bender and you go to it and you ask a few witnesses what they saw and it's not a big deal. It's over, right? But if it's something more serious, somebody witnessed a murder at the extreme end, right? And you ask, hey, what, what happened here? And especially if there's gang connections or other more serious, wider implications, maybe a little more difficult to get right. people to speak. Right. Or if they do speak, what responsibility do you as a police officer or I as a journalist have to that person's safety? Right. Right. You know, I think we do have a responsibility to consider the consequences of our actions, but we also have a responsibility to at least consider the consequences for the people who share information with us. And that is a whole spectrum from grieving parents in Humboldt who We have to be careful that we are not making things worse when we ask them and and want them to open up to us and share all this information, all this pain with us. We also have a responsibility in a very practical way for a person's physical safety. Right. And so if we think that there is a chance or a likelihood that somebody is going to come to harm because of the information that they're giving us or the interview that they're giving us, or even the knowledge that someone's going to know that they were talking to us. Exactly, yeah. We have to consider that. And, you know, in different cases, there's a whole spectrum. Again, sometimes that just means, okay, I'm aware of it. But other times that means, okay, either we're going to take steps to provide anonymity to that person, which we will guard vigorously. And other times that means, you know, just talking about certain subjects on the record and then some off and whatever. But for me, I believe that that relationship is sacred. That is one of the most fundamental relationships that we have in our society is the, uh, is the relationship between a source who's giving information mm-hmm. and the people who work for institutions that are tasked like journalists or police officers or whoever 
with making things better and figuring out what's going on when bad people are doing bad things. And we want to make things better, whether that's in an individual case or on a bigger issue. And so in my case, uh, yes, I spoke to someone and they wanted their information protected. They wanted certain information to be not released. And so it got to the point where I had to go to court and a judge and lawyers were demanding that I give up certain information that I had promised to protect. Was this person's identity also an anonymous at in the time? This, uh, in this case, yeah, some of that was. Okay. Uh, some of that was. And so I guess we had a number of arguments that we made that we believed supported what our position was. And uh, over a three-day period, we made these arguments about why this should be protected and why journalists have a right and an obligation to protect their sources. In the end, the, the judge disagreed and, and ordered me to turn over my notes. And I, I uh, respectfully uh, declined and, uh, and was briefly arrested. And then my notes were, were seized Oh, I see. At the end of it, anyway. <laughs> oh, at the end they were? Uh, so at the end they were disclosed? Not by me. They seized my belongings as part oh, of I taking see. me into custody. And and then my notes were taken from there. Did you, So did you have a chance to vet them or anything? or? Uh, I can't speak about oh, okay. uh, all of that. But that, the thanks details, for asking. Yeah, but no uh, that's about all the information I can say about that right now. Other than, obviously, we and I disagreed with the way it uh, it occurred. But that's, uh, that's that. Uh, some... Uh, were critical of of the judge and others were critical of us right. for not complying uh, with a judge's order. But I guess you just try and make the best decisions that you can given the information and the situation that you're in. So is there no is there no clear cut legislation already in place? Like I know for for policing, anyways, for years we've had to dis- we disclose our notebooks. Like that's that's the the basis of you know disclosure. Um, you get the police officer's notes as well. But then when it comes to a source handler's notebook, so if I'm handling a confidential informant and I my informant provided information on a warrant that we used to get to search a house for drugs and guns, for example, and then if I'm called to the stand to testify as the as the contact person who you know m- met with the informant and owns that informant, then I have to disclose the information. On occasion, they'll ask for my source notebook, but my source notebook is literally a black piece of paper. I hand them because you know I don't know. I can't turn this over and say to because technically I'm not turning it over to the courts. I'm turning it over to the to the bad guy in this case, who uh, if they read it, they might the be able to guy. the alleged <laughs> bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, they might be able to, uh, you know, determine who who that source was just based on the information they provided and how it's written in my notebook. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough one, and it's a delicate balance. I understand that there is a need uh, for journalists and even police officers and even lawyers at times to disclose things that they may have promised to keep quiet or or may have had an arrangement, a previous arrangement. So, if somebody had told me that they they were going to you know blow up a building an office building downtown at a specific time and this is how they're going to do it right i have an obligation to disclose that even if i'd promised the person that we're going to uh, just talk between the two of us if i believe that was actually going to happen yeah. or if they were going to do harm to a child or things like that but uh, short of that there's not many situations where i think that relationship and that confidence should be violated. And uh, Canadian law is still not 
black and white about that for journalists. Right. And okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess I just leave it at that to say, you know, I, I have certain feelings about it, but, uh, yeah. but we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I think there's... it's, I think it's important to, to evaluate individual cases as journalists. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't think there's, well, there's probably not too many circumstances where it would even be plausible that some, uh, that this could happen to a reporter, right? It's not, it's not that often. No, it's not. It's happened in a handful of cases in my career. And, right. uh, and again, Unfortunately, it's only when the stakes are high yeah. that it really matters. Exactly. But that relationship of confidentiality between a source and a journalist or a police officer or a lawyer or a priest mm-hmm. is fundamental to our democracy and fundamental to justice Absolutely. Uh, in this country. And if that is eroded and there is no more belief that your information will be private when you share it and you could be put at risk then nobody's going to talk to police officers. Exactly. Nobody's going to talk to journalists. Exactly. And, you know, we can list all the different cases or all the different stories that no one would ever know about. Yeah, exactly. And uh, our society would be poor. Well, well, I'll tell you, crimes would not be solved very often without <laughs> right. without any some confidential information coming in from the community. Yeah, so without referring to like that specific case we were talking about, in very general terms, I believe it's, it's a fundamental pillar of of democracy. Yeah, uh, completely. It's not without exception, but it's should be a pretty strong principle. Yeah. So I mean one of the most, you know, famous cases and I know we can't we can't talk in too much detail about it because there's still some of it before the courts, but you know one of the most uh well, recently famous police informant that went that went public was uh, Noel Harder. Right. So Noel Harder, I mean, with Project Forsetti, if uh, I'll encourage our our uh, readers to actually look up some of your work that you've done. Maybe we'll put some links in our show notes uh, because you followed the Project Forsetti closely. I did, and you also had some um, contact with the you know the informant that became a police agent um, right. after the fact. So you know, we talked about empathizing before. You know, as as you're building relationship with people in the community to to get information for them. So how you know, in this case, and the police did as well, and cl- close personal friends of mine, actually, you know, they built a relationship with someone who was involved in outlaw motorcycle gang, who uh, had information, who, you know, had a criminal past. You know, what was that like for you building a relationship with someone that's probably not your average person you would socialize with? Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes things evolve intentionally and others uh, just accidentally. And so, yeah, it is very different when you uh, are dealing with someone like a confidential source or a police informant in this case. Uh, again, the stakes are very high. There are safety issues for them, for you, uh, for your family, for for a lot of people involved. And so, again, that's something that you have to consider, right? And so once you resolve that, uh, and then you resolve your own principles in general, right? I have a very clear line in my head of many of the things that I would and wouldn't do as a journalist, what I feel is ethical and right and what is not. And most of the time, that's what's legal, of course, right? right? But again, there are exceptions, right? Uh, apartheid was legal. The past, the <laughs> yeah. past system for First Nations people uh, in our country was legal, yeah, imprisoning them on their reserves. Yeah. Uh, it was legal to deny women and minorities and, and recent immigrants the vote. Right. in this country right. until not too long ago. Right. Right. So um, 
I think we'd say if people who followed those laws, we'd look at that now and shake our head, right? Well, informant handling is that gray area of of policing, and I'm sure it's the same as in reporting. So, I mean, again, there's there's general rules, which I agree with, but there are exceptions, right? And so this was this was difficult because someone's telling you something and then about a world that you're not really privy to. I wasn't in any of those meetings between the Hells Angels and and the fallen saints or others, right? You know, I'm not privy to the the police files with the investigation of right. where that's at. And so you have to evaluate that again with a grain of salt. And yes, you're representing the perspective of uh, one person, a police informant, but you're also working as hard as you can to get the perspective of everyone else involved, right? And so you just collect it and gather as much information as you can, uh, work with a team at the place you're at. In this case, part of it was at the CBC, part of it was in my former job at the Star Phoenix. And then you decide what to publish. Some details you you publish because you're confident that that's the case, uh, or you've had a chance for the other side to to refute it or to answer to it. Other details, you're just not confident enough that it's publishable. And we have very strict principles, but in the end, it is, again, a team that has to make judgment calls, right? Just like police officers to charge or not is not always a black and white right. well, uh, thing, is. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, or even who to charge, right? right? And so, so yeah, it's it. that's a heavy weight as well, right? Are you doing the right thing? Uh, hopefully we are. If we run a story and it's wrong or a detail is wrong, hopefully we respond rapidly and fully and apologize if we get something wrong or correct it uh, fully. And uh, and you just try and do the best you can with the information that's that's available, I guess. Right. So when Noel first came to you, was it was it right off the bat like you're releasing his name and this is the story? Like, yeah, it's a good question. Well, what I said about meetings, it was uh, completely accidental. I got assigned to write a feature on a uh, on a construction company on the weekend, uh, like a little fluffy feature. Noel Harder was the was the owner of the company, and so I I spent uh, the day with him as he was uh, shoveling out a basement in City Park. And so I uh, just got to got to know him there. And then we made contact a couple of years later, and and that's where it all went. Did so, you know at that time that he was a... Uh, I did a story about his former life as a, oh, as you a did drug trafficker. Story. I didn't yeah. even look that up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I guess that's where things started, and they've, uh, they've evolved from there. And so whether it's, whether it's him or whether it's others, yeah, it's, it's always a... I'd probably not call it a relationship because that implies there's, you know, a friendship or things like that. Yeah. And you could call it a working relationship, I guess, but I just prefer to call it like a a source. Oh, yeah. You know, even though you talk to somebody frequently, you still have to guard against that both professionally and not not being buddy-buddy with anybody because that's not fair to the others. And also for the source not to think that you're buddy-buddy with them uh, because that's unfair if you have to write something critical about that person down the road. The same goes in policing too yeah, when, we, so when we train on informants. Yeah, so you want everyone to be clear that you are a journalist and only a journalist in this relationship. There is no special treatment. Uh, there is no friendship. Right. You can be pleasant and professional with people, but at no time can you let them think or the public think that you are on one side or the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've had lots of informants over the years that, you know, that you you do see them so often. And a lot of times in the worlds that I worked in and drugs and organized crime and gang section where I'm at now, 
a lot of times their informant handler is what we refer to them as. So the cop that's that's got the relationship or the working relationship with that informant. Um, we're oftentimes we're the only person in their life that's stable and that isn't trying to stab them in the back and that's you know that's uh, you know talking to them in a nice professional manner like they're not used to it. they're not used to that and so they can get really attached and without uh, I think like very strong ethics and morals and uh, knowing where your lines are like you said that's so important when it comes to dealing with these people because they are they are people as well and and coming from a, the life that they have. You know, they everybody wants wants something a little bit better than what they are currently living in, and it's easy to get sucked in. Like I've I've had informants offer me cash. I have an informant who actually turned over and a total of over four hundred fifty thousand dollars cash to me that nobody knew about. This wow. is just completely confidential, <laughs> and and so we you know we dealt with it in a manner that was. Uh, I've never had that. No, for the record. Never, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I wish I hadn't. Um, but in fairness, uh, you know, the way we handled that in a in a professional manner made sure that you know everything's on the up and up because it can be. A, it can be an awkward and dicey situation. So, you know, you have to have these morals and guidelines in place. I've had guys, you know, and informants want to take me out for supper all the time as a, as a thing. It's like, man, like we're, that's not, and you're constantly saying that's not the kind of relationship we have. Yeah. There can be an attachment that you have to constantly sort of remind or make clear that this is a professional relationship. And so both in your own mind and to that person as well. Right. And so, and, Sometimes, like you're you're saying, yeah, it uh, definitely they have an attachment to you, and they're looking for some stability and things like that. And other times, not necessarily with this case, but in other cases that I've had, they're trying to play you and scam you, right? Um, totally by, by faking an emotional connection or by faking affection for you or things like that, right? And so you know you have to judge: is this genuine or is this an agenda that's going on here? Is this part, am I just a stepping stone in whatever plot that's going on to to make this other guy look bad, right? And so, yeah, it's all part of a, a really difficult evaluation process at multiple levels, for sure. Right. Last thing I wanted to just quickly touch on, as uh, as an investigative reporter, you kind of have your finger on the pulse of you know what's what's going on in a community. You know we're we're a an organization that is pushing for research based drug policy and drug initiatives. What are you seeing, or have you seen any shift in your career over the last twenty years in what the community, what you know, the public, and you know, policymakers? are doing is there does there seem to be any change going on you know we have the fentanyl crisis we have you know methamphetamines ruining our community are you seeing as a reporter any unique changes right yeah that's a that's a great question and again i'm not someone who's in the drug life i'm not a police officer in the drug unit who's seeing this every day but uh but yeah over the last 20 years i've done dozens of stories about this issue and talked to probably hundreds of people about uh, this issue. And yeah, I guess the big picture is that on the one hand, crime is going down overall since the 80s. In by most measures, crime's actually going down. So right. in this case, or in a lot of cases, journalism does a disservice by constantly scaring people about the the crime waves that are going on in the in the city or in the country or in the province, because it's actually going down. You know, there's fewer murders, there's fewer of most crimes Overall, right. That said, you're right. There are new drugs coming in. There are problems that seem to be happening uh, that are different than they were 
20 years ago. And so whether that's the gang issue, we all know the cause of that isn't just kids who want to do bad things. It's a lot of trauma and a lot of history in our communities, particular First Nations and Métis that are causing a lot of that. And the gangs or the drugs are the end result, as you have eloquently put a lot of times when I've talked to you, it's the end result of a whole bunch of events and history and situations and things that are in place in our society, right? And it's not just that end result that we see. And so what do you do about it, right? Is it, is it just writing profile stories about the latest person that's died of a, an overdose? Right. Is that going to change uh, the world? Well, maybe it'll tell someone's story and maybe make people think twice for a, for a moment, right? Or at least give dignity to that person or their family who died. And that's important. But in the big picture, what we need to do as a society and as police officers and journalists and everybody is ask why all this is happening, right? Not just what's happening. Too right. often as journalists, we just say what's happening, right? Oh, somebody was arrested. Somebody died, whatever. Oh, this uh, person was convicted, uh, whatever. That's not going to change things in my mind. That helps to inform the community and that's the start. But what's going to change it is looking at the root causes of of everything. Why did that person decide to to take that drug? Why is this person, you know, associated or involved in that kind of a life? Right. And what impacts is it having as a yeah, you know, on the community to the community. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I see these specific drugs as as issues, right? Obviously, or crises or whatever you want to want to call them. And they need a response, uh, whatever it is, to the immediate stuff, but that's the band-aid. The meaningful change is going to happen when when everyone, social workers, police officers, journalists, everybody, really starts to look at the, the big picture and the history and the situations that people are in in our society that leads them to these kinds of decisions, right? So do you, think, do you think we're seeing that, you know, as a community, we're taking, we're more aware of, of you know, some of these root cause issues? It's coming, yeah. It's coming? Yeah, it's coming, uh, whether it's... Uh, you know, reconciliation or need for housing or things like that. These are deep issues. I mean, residential schools ran for 150 years. So it's not all going to shift in uh, in a few months or overnight, right? You know, this whether it's 60 scoop, whether it's income inequality that's growing in our communities. There's, there's so many different issues that need to be attacked uh, and written about. Right. And, people made aware, right? Our job is to make people aware of what the issues are, to give them the tools to attack the problem, right? Journalists, we're kind of observers, right? We're not actively building houses or running rehab programs or working on reconciliation initiatives or whatever, right? But hopefully we can give people the information that they that they need to make the decisions and we can inspire them to do the right thing and to make the city and the community better. Are you seeing, you know, from from your bosses, I guess, or or wherever they get the the motivation to do stories on certain issues, are you seeing a push at all uh, lately to, you know, do stories or delve into any of the research on, you know, drug policy or drug reform or, uh, you know, addiction rates or anything like that? In a word, yes, there is a recognition that deeper looks at things are what is really going to change things. Uh, Selfishly for the CBC or the Star Phoenix or anyone else, it's what people will read, right? In the internet age and social media, if you do a story about 
somebody who got convicted of something or what's in the provincial budget or a highway announcement or whatever, by the time you've written the story and posted on the website, it may be a few hours later, people have already heard it on Twitter and Facebook and anybody who cares about that issue already knows it, right? Uh, If you wait till the six o'clock news to tell people or wait till the newspapers in your mailbox the next day, you can't just tell them what happened. There's a recognition that you got to tell them why and go deeper, right? So at any given time, uh, the Star Phoenix is, from what I understand, still this, this way as well. But here at the CBC, a portion of us as reporters, I'd say about a third of us at any given time are working on longer form or longer term things that are about issues, right? That's how we can get the community to know things right away, but we can also step back and look at the bigger picture things. And so Alicia, one of our reporters spoke to you, I, I think it was several months ago, about opioids and issues like that and produced a a long form piece. And in some ways we think uh, the attention deficit of social media generation, you know, they're not going to read longer things, but that piece was one of the most read things on our website for that month in the whole country. Right. And so if you give people quality information, they will still gravitate toward it. That gives me faith in humanity. When I see numbers (laughs) like that, it's not just blood and guts or sex or puppy dogs or whatever uh, that sells. It's quality information that you can give people. You can teach them about history. When I wrote a piece about uh, somebody who gets convicted of something, if I can help it, I look into their family history a little more and I talk to their relatives and I find out why. This well, you wrote the Crystal and the Pope story where our lives crossed there a few years ago. Yeah. I try and tell about the person's story. How did they get to that point that that you ended up in court writing about today, right? And a lot of times that will shed a lot of light on why that person is there. Sometimes they're just a bad egg, but right. a lot of times there's- <laughs> That's pretty rare. That's going on. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that this X, Y, Z happened. It's because ABC happened in the first place. And uh, if you can tell those kinds of stories, people will- will pay attention. Uh, they still pay attention to that stuff. Yeah, I've always really appreciated that about you, Jason. Uh, your style of reporting, I think, right from when I first you know, started following you at the Star Phoenix and then here at the CBC, you're always kind of that guy that goes deeper. You're more of a big picture thinker, but, I, but you like to, it seems like you like to tell, kind of hit those big picture notes by doing it kind of through these micro small stories that all link together. Yeah, exactly. You found my secret. I did yeah. find your secret, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's super entertaining and, and, it's, and it's very effective. So, you know, thanks. Uh, you wanted to say a couple words about keeping, keeping you guys your mental health under control, I think, yeah, as reporters. and Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, you and I have talked about this in, informally as well, but uh, we talked about the things like like Humboldt. Uh, we talk about the things like even the uh, the death of Colton Bushy. We talk about, I've covered seven, I counted just b- before I came here, I counted and I've covered seven murder-suicides alone in Saskatchewan, right? So like I said, I'm not in any way comparing my emotions or situation to the people who experience this or their family members. Those are, uh, those are wounds that are far deeper. But as journalists, yes, it can be very difficult to cover these things, both seeing these scenes, but day after day after day, being surrounded by people who are grieving, writing about people who are grieving, and publishing things about people who are grieving. And horrific things, the, the worst of humanity, as you see as police officers, it's, it's not always inspiring. Right? No. Sometimes you have to write about horrible things that happen to good people 
And to me, part of the way I get around that or deal with that is to find something redeeming, find some issue in there that potentially can be improved and to make life better and to make sure this doesn't happen again. So in the case of Humboldt, one of the things that people brought to our attention and my attention was the rules and regulations or the lack thereof for truckers, right? And so now that's one area that I am looking deeper into is, do we have sufficient rules for, for semi-drivers? And most people I've talked to said, said no, right? And so maybe that's one thing that can be improved, whether that applies to the specific case or whatever, that's maybe one area of society that can be improved. And that's given me a bit more motivation to, to continue on the story. The other thing is your own mental health, right? And so a lot of us are very open. Uh, a lot of our managers and editors are very open about encouraging us to take advantage of the counseling and the psychological support that we have, whether it was when I was at the Star Phoenix or now here at the CBC. I've got no qualms about going and talking to a psychologist or a counselor or anything about a heavy story that we've been involved with. And after the Lalosh shootings, happened, oh, yeah, that, uh, that was another that. really heavy one. Yep. I was there two hours. I happened to be north of PA on another story when the news broke. So I was actually in the community that night when it happened and uh, everything was raw and fresh and incredibly traumatic. And so I was there for four days just surrounded by all of that, right? And so when I got home, even though I wasn't coming down yet, it hadn't hit me yet, I booked an appointment with a psychologist Good. and went for three sessions and just talked to them about it, right? And it wasn't magic. It was just talking yep, about it. Getting and out there. That helped a lot. So I'd encourage anyone, don't be hesitant. I approach it the same thing as if I have a sore knee, I go to the doctor, right? Uh, if, you're, if your brain or your emotions or your heart needs work, you go take care of it, right? I uh, I go for a beer with my buddies. I sit down with my wife. I go play ball in the park with my kids just to let all that stuff try and wash off, right? I'm not going to forget about it, but at least I can get some perspective back in life. Not everything in life is horrible like that thing you've just been talking about for right. eight hours, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And so um, uh, the other thing that's real key for me is exercise. And I'm a marathon runner, so of course I get a an obscene amount of exercise, but, uh, <laughs> but for anyone who is going through these traumas, I'm not saying that if you're, you know, somebody who's been directly affected, that exercise will cure everything. It, it won't. Right. But for these kinds of micro effects that journalists and police officers and others accumulate over days and days or over a career, regular exercise is just the thing that has saved me, right. Is getting out even for a short jog around the, the bridges, right? Yep. To get that fresh air, to get those endorphins going, to just be out there and focus on that. Running in itself is a traumatic experience for me. So yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> well, you can walk. But I hit the gym. You can I'll walk. You can hit the gym, pound some weights, or, yeah. <laughs> or ride a bike. Or, But like I said, even if I take little breaks uh, when I'm trying to write a heavy story, like the one with yourself and Crystal or others, uh, even just to get out and walk around the block, right. uh, get that fresh air to move your body and get some blood in your brain. And right. uh, it, it can make such a huge difference. And now research, as we know, is showing, talk about drugs, research is showing that exercise actually for, for mild to medium trauma, not again, not severe or severe mental illness is different, right? But for people like us that go through these things day after day, exercise is on par or better than drugs totally, or even better than seeing a medical expert, right? Right. If you can get yourself out there, it can have tremendous effects. And uh, so that's, 
that's the coping mechanisms that I've employed. And yeah, it's a, it's a weight that's growing. I can't deny it. Every time I go to these things now, I'm carrying all the ones that I've covered. Yeah, it's impossible to shake them. No, they don't go away. But you try and manage that weight for sure. And part of the reason that you do it is because you're, you believe that you're making the, the community better. Right. Well, Jason, uh, thanks a lot for coming in. I mean, you have been that outlet for a lot of people who are going through traumatic experiences. I mean, they're getting to tell their story to an entire community through you. Thanks for doing the work here in our community. And Oh, thank you for your work. And, and anyways, uh, there's things that I could delve into and maybe we'll have to do future episodes where we, where yeah, we pick something specific because <laughs> we, we, uh, we scratch the surface of a lot of areas. But uh, thanks a lot for coming in. I know you got to get out of here. So, so let's, let's end it here. Thanks, Jason. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's uh, funny being on the opposite side of the yeah, microphone, but, uh, but I really appreciate it. And thank you for all your work. You deal, you're in a different profession, but you deal with a lot of the same issues. So, uh, so it was nice to talk. I appreciate it. Great. And we'll have a link to uh, a lot of Jason's unique stories that we brushed on uh, in our show notes. Make sure you check those out and read a little deeper. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Say No podcast. On next week's episode, I sit down with Senator Vernon White. It's a very interesting discussion we have about the marijuana legislation. He met with me just as he was coming out of the Senate after arguing part of the bill that he disagrees with. Tune in for that discussion. As you know, we are a nonprofit organization and we need all the support we can get. The easiest way to provide that support is by simply sharing our podcast, leaving comments, helping us get as much publicity as we can. If you like it, share it. If you don't like it, comment. Let's discuss what you don't like. We are uh, open to hearing other perspectives and learning as we go. Also, keep an eye out for our website, not only for the show notes, but pretty soon we're going to be selling some things like t-shirts and other items to help raise money and keep spreading the sayno.org message. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week with Senator Vernon White.